And we're starting to see that if we're really in this body, this body immediately remembers that it is this living earth and there's nothing to be afraid of. Ideas we have of death are these products of a linearity and of a world that is fundamentally lonely and disconnected and separate. And that's what makes me so optimistic and excited about the phase humanity is going through right now, because I feel like we're going through this re-indigenization of our culture. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Leonard Henning. Leonard described himself as the founder, teacher, and facilitator. He explores the edges of individual and collective development through the angles of consciousness, embodiment, safety, trauma, metaphysics, philosophy, and deep ecology using an integral framework of the whole undivided cosmos. This is a conversation about regeneration. This is a conversation about opening up spaces to connect with life and death, to connect with each other, and of course, with the more than human world, and to realize that there is no black and white, there is no separation. This conversation bridges the one that we had a couple of weeks ago with Joe Brewer. You'll find many similarities. And I can already tell you that it's going to be part one of two conversations. There's many other aspects of Leonard's work and his thinking that I'd love to explore in a few weeks. I'm going to do something that I've never done before, which is to read a passage from a book that hopefully will set up this conversation for you. It's from G.I. Gorgiev from his book, All and Everything. Quote, the soul means now for the saving of the beings of the planet Earth would be to implant again into their presences a new organ of such properties that every one of these unfortunates during the process of existence should constantly sense and be cognizant of the inevitability of his own death, as well as the death of everyone upon whom his eyes or attention rests. Only such a sensation and such a cognizance can now destroy the egoism completely crystallized in them, end quote. You'll see that Leonard brings a rich conversation to the table, but also an accessible one, one that allows for the opening of spaces, connections, and understanding. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. You'll see lots of articles, websites, resources, podcasts, links, and so forth. Again, it's www.coconut-thinking.com, and I will leave space for my conversation with Leonard. Well, hi, Leonard. It's uh, absolutely wonderful to have you on the show. You've got a wonderful story to tell. It's, this, it's really an adventure story in many ways. But before we get to that, um, I want to speak with you a little bit about uh, some of your reviews, uh, the journey that got you there. And I guess the first question I'll ask is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Thank you, Benjamin. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited about today's conversation after our first little get to know conversation that felt like so inspired immediately. So I'm pretty much curious, uh, mostly what will come out of us today, what's gonna reveal itself. And yeah, who am I and what story I want to tell? I feel like that's exactly that story of curiosity. If I think about who I am, probably that's usually a question that most people start thinking about what they did so far, what they learned, what they studied what profession they have. And when I think about who I am, I think a bit more about how I am and how I'm, how I'm made as a, as a neurological being, because I would see myself pretty much deep into a spectrum that is usually called ADHD in this world, which I 
have a different perspective on. And that kind of makes me insatiably curious about everything in life. And I've had the the luxury, the privilege to be able to allow myself in life to be guided by pretty much only this curiosity. So through all, all my life, I've been following this like childlike sense of awe and wonder and, oh, I wonder how, I wonder what, I wonder what happens if, and that has led me to pretty amazing places that I'm really grateful for. So I've never really followed a linear path of learning this and then doing the profession that matches this studies. I've always studied and learned what I was curious about and taken many turns and many tangents along the way. And I've allowed myself to stay in this childlike state of curiosity and awe and make drastical decisions and choices whenever I felt like my my energy, my curiosity is moving somewhere else. I've always given myself the permission to follow that intuition. So I guess the story I want to tell is a story really about what I've learned from life along the way and the curiosities I've discovered and the interesting relationships, the interesting patterns. I've been very interested all my life in patterns and commonalities, like how is something in art the same as is, as it is in relationships? How is our neurobiology mirroring deeper ancient wisdom traditions and really seeing like not how is the world so different and compartmentalized into different um disciplines different fields of study but i've been always more curious like how is everything that is perceived different actually a very similar expression of a shared pattern so one of the biggest curiosities i've had in my life was really the the deeper patterns of how life evolves of how life develops of how humans, animals, nature, ecologies evolve along the lines of shared patterns. And what can we learn from these patterns? And I want to get into the idea of patterns and certainly into this idea of following one's intuition. Before I do so, the next question we ask all our guests to get a shared understanding, or at least a shared appreciation that we don't have a shared understanding, is how do you define learning? Yeah, learning is for sure one of the biggest inspirations in my life. And I've tried out many approaches to that. I've also done the traditional path of following a university degree. I I studied law and business and even managed to finish it in, um, despite my ADHD. But for me, learning was always informed by this state of curiosity I've described. So for me, learning has always been more a state than a process. It has always been more an attitude of how I meet life and how I bring a certain state of presence together with an attitude of openness and wonder and curiosity that brings one into direct relationship with life. And I feel like this is where learning becomes really potent when we have this state of presence and curiosity combined. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we allow ourselves to really be in relationship with all that is in this present moment. I feel like this is when we tap into somewhat of the universal knowledge of this whole living ecology. And we are in a, in a way dancing with ancient, present, alive knowledge instead of 
just downloading facts that someone else considered important in the past and passed it on for me to also learn it. So I feel like, yeah, learning for me is really this, this direct relationship with the vitality of this living earth. The expression that you use, and, I, and, and you know, I, I've, uh, I just mentioned it a minute ago about following your intuition. If we think about these, uh, just in terms of how we are and the intellect, the cognitive side, the intuition, feeling, uh, the sensing, all these union uh, words that come up. In schools, for instance, or any kind of, of, of learning organization, mostly it's, it's what you just described of downloading content from someone else. But when you talk about following your curiosity and your intuition, that is feels more like an embodied experience. How does that come about or how has that led you towards in your learning journey to have it be so much in confidence that it is intuition rather than a set plan? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. For me, the, the biggest excitement around learning new things for me lately has been to find the areas where these two fundamentally different approaches to learning actually start coalescing, where the factual, the, the analytical, reductionistic kind of learning facts, learning through semantics, learning through factual knowledge, this left brain way of meeting the world is intimately interwoven with the intuiting, with the embodied, the presence, the sensing, the direct experience of an animate, undivided whole, as Ian McGilchrist describes it, which is... Um, in my opinion, one of the most um, progressive, most on-point philosophers we have these days. So where these two, two approaches of meeting the world meet, this is where I'm getting most excited about. And exactly as you say, for me, intuition, this sense of deeper knowing that isn't a result of factual thinking, but that is just an, an experience within my body is, is really this embodied relationship with life as it happens around me right now and this is really the right brain capacity that we have where we perceive everything around us everything our senses deliver into a mind as an undivided animate contextual always emerge uh, uh, evolving always changing never separate whole and now our culture, as you as you mentioned, uh, what we do in schools, what we do in universities, I feel like our culture is is at a very, very, very exciting point in time right now. You could also say very terrifying and disorienting and and crazy point in time. But I feel like the potential of the time we are in is offering to us is that we're coming to a point where this obsession, this fixation on left brain only learning is finally coming to its natural limitations. Like even science is starting to open up to different ways of thinking, even like physicists, biologists, mathematicians start looking into fields of thinking that are more informed by Eastern wisdom traditions, more informed by states of presence and intuition. And um, there is a start, a beginning awareness to the limitations of the scientific method. And when I say limitations, I don't mean wrongness. Like I love science. I'm, I would totally identify as a hardcore geek. I'm super curious about the things you can learn about the universe that others have learned before me. 
But I feel like we're coming to a point where our culture becomes aware that only looking at the world through reductionism and analysis and compartmentalization um, gives you truth, but these truths are partial and it has a limitation. And somewhat we need to learn now how to embed these facts and these semantics into a more complete, more coherent, less divided whole perspective on the cosmos. And I feel like that's exactly the moment in time we're in and all our institutional learning processes are still in this kind of overhang of 300 years of fixation and obsession with an analytical reductionism only. And this promise that the scientific method made, like we're going to take you out of this disorienting delusions where you believe and where you believe in a God and a spirit and all these stories and myth. And we're suddenly going to blow away the fog and give you clarity and knowledge and understanding. And we've all drank too much of this wine, I feel like, and got drunk and intoxicated by this idea that the universe is explainable by a method that just reduces and removes and disconnects and takes everything out of context and out of relationship. And that was a fascinating journey, an exciting journey that has brought us really far. And now it feels like we're in this kind of hangover phase of that developmental journey. And we realize like, oh, maybe only drinking this wine will not get us to an to an enlightened relationship with the cosmos. And I feel like what's emerging right now in our culture, at least in the more leading edge um, circles, is is a curiosity to find a way back into a direct relationship with a living cosmos that isn't just stuff that isn't just atoms that isn't just things lying around waiting to be turned into a good or a service but that is an enchanted animate whole that is waiting to for us to be in relationship with it and, and i don't think we can uh, pause long enough or perhaps sit long enough with this idea of the reductionism of this of that came out of the enlightenment the post-enlightenment period the scientific revolution of breaking things down into parts in order to understand them, which has had its place and has done wonderful things for, for our civilizations. Terrible things as well. We know, I, I mean, even saying wonderful and terrible, this uh, this binary is a wrong, is, is not the right way to see it. But 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 certainly it, it has allowed us to, um, to, to develop the civilization that we have for, for, for whatever it might be. It is part of who we are is what I'm trying to say, effectively, in a very long way. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is what you're saying is... You're talking about intuition coming from the inside, the embodiment. Yeah, you're also talking about relationality. So that really, it, it is the exact opposite of reductionism of breaking people into individuals, which means you cannot divide. But but really, there's an embodied experience that exists in relation that becomes in relations with other things. And things themselves are, 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 are in relations with other things. And that maybe we need to even go beyond the idea of things because that itself puts it, you know, reifies where actually we're events. I mean, th this is something that that could take up pages and pages and pages of many, many tomes, but this, 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 the relational piece that is something that we should really think about and consider, it's it's devastating to the old order. Absolutely. And in in a good way. And for me, that's like, we'll probably touch later on that, but this devastation is the essence of the gift of death. Like there's a natural intelligence that something that 
has left the the realm of vitality and life givingness within this undivided ecology will naturally move into a death process so that fixated left brain only analysis only perspective has now after giving us all these gifts of medicine hygiene um, understanding about how to create energy technology engineering computers information technology all these things has now come to a place where it's creating more bad than good it has come to a place where it has the capacity to destroy the living ecology at large through the choices we're making so there's a natural intelligence coming now that is counteracting that and that brings that devastation to this this delusion that there is only this way of meeting the world and that is an embodied direct experience of life and as you said it's a relationality that awakens then there is this idea that the world is a set of things that it's a set of objects and the more embodied, more direct experiential experience of the world or way of looking at the world realizes, no, actually, whatever I'm looking at is a relationship. There's, it's more true to say there's only relationships in this world than to say there's only things in this world. And both statements are true and are part of a more whole, more complete, more comprehensive truth of this universe. But it's more true to, to look at the world and say, wow, this is everything is a relationship. Every subatomic particle creates itself through a relationship with even smaller elementary particles, all the way down, all the way up. And this fascination for relationship, ecology, the, the knowledge of the home, the knowledge of the house we're living in, we're dwelling in. I feel like that's going to be the next next uh, journey of curiosity of, of our collective evolution is to come now from the fascination on the small and move towards the fascination on the whole, which is something we have really forgotten as a culture. And I think culturally, collectively, we are evolving like individuals, like children. And very much when I look at the state of the world today, I see more an adolescent world than a mature adult um, um, collective. So like kids learn by fixating on one thing and then jumping to the next and forgetting everything they've learned on the first thing. This is how we have learned so far. We've been only religious, only animate, uh, uh, only in animism, only in, in hierarchical culture, and then jumping only on scientific reductionistic culture. And I feel like now we're starting to reach that capacity of maturity to say like what if and is the answer what if both of these perspectives are are true and are part of something even more comprehensive and i feel like that's that's what's happening right now and exactly as you said if we tap into this capacity of right brain presence and relationship we realize that it's not a state of separation that we tap into. It's not any more Benjamin or Leonard that is using their separate individuality or identity to intuit. I think true intuition is an experience of this undivided, complex, fractal, interdependent relationality that the whole living cosmos is. So we tap into something that goes beyond this temporary transitory illusion of a self of 
an individuality of an identity that owns this knowledge as its own property as a result of my thinking and my doing and my learning and this is who i am this is coming from my brain i think this is all the left brain decontextualized way of meeting the world but once we actually tap into a state of presence where we are deeply embodied we realize that this body is not ending here like if I'm really deeply in touch with my body and its present moment experience, I realize that this body is the whole earth. This body is the whole living, breathing cosmos. There is no, no limitation that is here in my physicality. And I find like this is one of the most entertaining, funny, apropos misunderstandings of our culture and philosophies to think like, oh, if you want to be in a realm of oneness, in a realm of transcendentality, where you are in touch with the undivided cosmos, that's all happening up here, um, transcending the body. And this happens up here in my soul, in this energetic body, where all these gross limitations of a physical body don't exist anymore. And I think that's the one of the biggest cosmic jokes, is that the truth is exactly turned around. Like, the idea that the body is separate is a projection that our left brain culture makes on this body. And following that projection, we then also say this body has a survival instinct. This body wants to survive at all costs. And this is what's driving evolution. And I think it's it's the opposite. This body is a transitory expression of a much larger living, breathing, evolving body. And it has no interest whatsoever in linearity and infinite survival. It has a relationship to purpose and to the differentiation of life and this living planet. So my body intimately knows that it's an ongoing process that has never begun and never ended. My body knows in its cells, in its DNA, that there's an unfolding process of membranes wrapping around membranes that is going on since billions of years. And the idea that this body thinks it's separate and scared and limited and doesn't know who it is, I think that's a projection of our Western mind. And we're starting to see that if we're really in this body, this body immediately remembers that it is this living earth and there's nothing to be afraid of. There's so much here, so many threads to pull. So I, I'm gonna to try to do a couple at a time and, and somehow tie them, those two threads together. The first is this idea you mentioned about, about subatomic particles. And, and again, this isn't hippie stuff of, of a bunch of guys singing Kumbaya. This is, this is quantum physics, the fact that there is uh, interconnections throughout the universe and that everything is, is entangled. And it's also more and more, as you mentioned it, in, in biology of going to the idea of, of, of symbiosis, of, of this idea that, that everything is connected, not isolated at all, but cannot live without other things. So these connections exist. And, and this idea of death, you, you brought up the word vitality, which is which is a word that has a lot of baggage in many ways. It's a word that was appropriated by the fascists um, earlier earlier in the 20th century. And, and really, when we think about vitality, this idea of life, you brought up death. Death is something we're so afraid of. We want to keep people alive as long as possible, pump them with drugs, set them up on tubes. But death is really, and I know this might sound very trite, but but you cannot have life without death. And and this this fear that we have in our culture of death, Let's go back to composting. Thank you. Yeah, beautiful. That's exactly, I believe, the essential misunderstanding. If we look at 
an idea of regeneration. And right now it has become as hip to be regenerative in business as it has been hip to be sustainable 30 years ago. And it's another word that a disconnected, extractive industry takes and misunderstands and reduces to a nice feeling. And now we have all these innovating consultancies that are now telling large extractive corporations how to be regenerative, which often is an absolute non-truth. They actually just use new language to sound more a certain paradigm that they're trying to mimic to continue with what they're doing. But if we really open ourselves to the idea of regeneration, we see that this is the cyclical truth that ecology is moving through since forever. Like life as it is, is deeply, profoundly regenerative. And regenerative from a Western mind sounds something like, oh, if I've exploited myself too much and the batteries are empty, I go regenerate, I go to a wellness place and I fill up these batteries again, and then I keep going, which is again, um, a way of our linear minds to reduce a nonlinear concept into something that the linear mind can handle and can be okay with. But regeneration is not a linear process. Regeneration basically is a description of this ever evolving, ever moving, never still, never disconnected process life is moving through. And if you want to hand the left brain analytical mind a little goodie to find its way into that, you could say that regeneration is a cyclical process that moves through three stages. The first being birth, um, the creation of the new, the creation out of nothing, the birth of a new child, the birth of a new idea, the birth of something um, that wasn't there before. And our culture loves that part. Like we are fascinated with birth, with new, always new trends, new products, new things that we need. And we celebrate young mothers. We celebrate pictures of babies and everybody wants to see it on Facebook and social media. And everybody gives attention to young parents and young mothers in particular and congratulates them on this creation of something new. And then there's a second stage in this regenerative cycle, which you could call sustenance or maintenance. And that's the idea of sustaining something that was born that was created and having giving it this transitory experience of vitality and aliveness and our culture is beginning to get in touch with that like we're starting to see like oh okay all this stuff we create maybe we maintain it maybe we are a little bit less a culture of throwing things away and replacing them maybe we start repairing things maybe we should look at repairing forests that we've exploited, maybe we should be a bit more sustainable, but it's already a process that is filled with much less passion and energy culturally. And then there's another phase of this regenerative cycle, which for me is exactly death. It's the deconstruction. It's the disintegration. It's that phase where the purpose of something is reached. Something is not life-giving anymore. Something is not supporting its oikos, its home, its environment, its ecology that it's embedded in anymore. And the most life-affirming, most compassionate thing to do is to take it apart, to reintegrate its resources into the living 
cycle, into the process of life, into the non-linearity of life that is constantly reinventing itself, re-emerging, reorganizing, redistributing energy and resources and knowledge and matter. And that's what death is. And so for me, even the idea of a dichotomy between life and death is a misunderstanding. Death and life are part of the essential same process. And you cannot, as you said, have life without death because they're the same. There is no such thing. And the cultural ideas we have of death are these products of a linearity and of a world that is fundamentally lonely and disconnected and separate, where I am born into this hostile alien universe. And the only chance I have is to survive. The only chance I have to be a part of life is to not die because I am separate from everything else and experience and, and pleasure and sensory um, awareness is only possible as long as I have this body that is intact, that is able to keep up its homeostasis. And at some point, if that ends, my experience ends, life ends for me. And it's terrifying. And it's this, this cultural delusion we are in, this, this attachment to our individuality that creates a frightening picture of death. But if we, if we go beyond that, if we realize, no, you just transitorily decided to identify with this body so you can understand what its purpose is and move it towards obsolescence as a steward of this part of this living earth, then you realize like my experience is not limited by this body. I'm experiencing life since billions of years and beyond that. And I have chosen to take stewardship of this body, of this part of living earth to, to guide it towards its purpose. And I'm happily moving into a phase of death and disintegration where these parts that I've taken care of for a couple of decades are reintegrated into the flow of life. And for me, that's, that's also explaining what this modern idea of stewardship is, uh, coming away from property, owning a piece of land, but realizing, no, there's a piece of land that I'm stewarding. And my body is also just a piece of land that I'm stewarding. And it opens us up to this possibility of obsolescence. I think the idea that something that is successful has to be sustained forever is what's creating the, the exploitation on this planet. Every company that is being founded is only looked at as successful if it can continue to engage in its exploitive processes forever which we know by now is not possible, like creating an assumption that something can go on forever that extracts resources without giving them back is delusional. But we think that success means continuation because we're caught in this, in this trap of linearity. But once we let that go, we realize the deepest expression of something successful in a vital evolution is obsolescence. It means that it has reached its purpose. It means that what it was supposed to do when it was created has been achieved and it can now happily be recombined, reorganized into something new with a new purpose. And I think if we start having that idea of success, we can build organizations, we can build ventures, we can engage in business endeavors that have the goal to be obsolete, that have the goal to reach a purpose, to fulfill its own destiny and then happily be disintegrated instead of creating these delusional 
juggernaut organizations that become disembodied when no one feels anymore. Why are we coming together here again? Who are these 150,000 people that are working for this balance sheet? Who is even owning this company? Who are the people behind it? Like we walk into these organizations and I've been a top management strategy consultant for six years. I've worked with these large organizations and corporations and leadership teams. And you walk in there and you have this sense of eeriness, disgust, like you walk into a place that is devoid of life. No one here knows anymore why we're here. No one walks around with a smile of passion and vitality and aliveness, knowing like, wow, I come here every morning because there is this purpose that we want to reach, because there is this this um, contribution to the overall life that we are taking responsibility here for, that we are stewarding towards manifestation. And so all these corporates are these lifeless, gray, dull bodies that are just engaged in this delusion of linearity and infinite success and infinite continuation. And nobody feels them anymore. And they're not actually contributing. They're taking resources in a dominating battle around the world who can dominate these resources and they turn them into goods that nobody needs, services that nobody needs, that nobody even wants, engaged in understanding how the dopamine cycles in our brains work, how can they make us crave shit that we don't want, stuff that we don't need. And everybody feels disconnected and empty by participating in this cycle, but nobody really knows how to get out of it. How do I not get up in the morning, work nine to five in a job I don't like, to things I don't need, to be frustrated in the evening, to drink and smoke and consume sugars and TV, to dull down and numb down this feeling of deep, deep disconnection from the living process that I came here to be in service of. And this uh, makes me think you mentioned organizations, you mentioned people, and of course, the, the word that you didn't mention, but you implied was institutions and not necessarily um, you know, the cultural institutions that we have uh, and, and culture beyond our, the, our, our borders, our, our, our boundaries. I, I'm thinking, of course, of schools here. And just as you mentioned, these, these uh, curricula that are just written down and don't respond to the, to the kids, don't respond to their needs, that are someone's um, who's decided to have this content that we need to know. And, and someone who even decides that knowledge is something that you can own and that you could, you could put in a bag rather than having it be a relational experience and one that has to emerge based on the conditions in that space. It's institutional, of course, in our political system. It's institutional, but we're afraid to put these necessarily to death as well because it affects who we are as a culture. So it's not just our identities as, as individuals, and I use you know the word loosely, but it's also our identity as a culture that we're afraid to put these things to death. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, all of these things, we we are very used to say, okay, who's the culprit? Who is doing all these things? Who is making these wrong decisions? And then we look at politics and politicians. We look at the rich people. We love looking at the billionaires, at the World Economic Forum, at the decision makers, the people that set up all these institutions. But I I don't believe in that because that would be a new idea of thinking. There is someone here pulling the threads who knows more than everyone else and who makes all these decisions in a linear cosmos. And I think the truth is that all these institutions are expressions, manifestations of the underlying culture, the underlying myth we all believe and participate in. Like nothing in this world 
could be operated that is not happening within the mythos everyone believes in. No one can can decide to set up a school system, set up a university system, set up a corporate culture if people don't participate in it because they believe in a shared myth. So that being said, these institutions, they will change as an expression, as a reflection of who we are, if our self-understanding, if our identity, our collective identity as being humans changes. And that also means destroying the very idea of being humans, because it's an absurdity in its own to say that we are something that is fundamentally different than everything else in the cosmos, every other living being on this planet. And all the rules of ecology and life don't apply to us because we are in this weird bracket. And while that might give you sometimes good feelings of feeling special and on top of the game, it also gives you very bad feelings of never being in a real relationship with the living cosmos that seems to be doing just fine when it's allowed to do its thing. Like you rarely walk into nature, into uh, untouched jungle, which barely exists anymore in this world, sadly, but you barely walk in there and see a bunch of depressed, sad animals and plants who are struggling so that very idea of sadness, of this unfulfilledness, this depression, this empty look at life is a result of the very idea that we are humans, because that's essentially not what we are. We are and a self-aware part of this living planet. And I think we can only change the institutions if we change our own identity, if we change the, the center of gravity from which we source our idea of self our self-image, our collective identity to just understand like, wow, we are this particular so-and-so, such-and-such part of this living intelligent earth. And even saying these things, the living earth, the intelligent earth, immediately puts you into this bracket of someone who's a bit too woo-woo, who drank a bit too much Kool-Aid, a bit too much ayahuasca, and who's running around singing love and light. But it's a much more real expression than we think it's much more true than to say you are a separate disconnected individual in an empty hostile universe it's much more true that you are a momentary transitory experience of a living planet that is a momentary transitory experience of a living solar system a living galaxy a living universe that is part of something even bigger that we can't even comprehend or even imagine yeah i don't know if i I actually followed your question, but no, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful, and and again, it brings us back to uh, to uh, most cutting edge of science, but also the most ancient of wisdoms uh, as well, for, uh, all across from First Nations uh, cosmogonies to uh, Buddhism to Hinduism, and, and um, I'd like to also ask you your, your adventure, the Asuris. Tell us a little bit about that. What what what's the next phase? The next part of uh of uh, of your life going to be well tell us about your, your your plans and projects yeah so yeah i've just been inspired when you talked about the sciences again and the indigenous and ancient, ancient wisdom traditions so i'm going to make a little tangent before i go to the next projects because i find that field so very interesting and it's what i've touched on in the beginning i feel like there is a moment where a new node in the weaving of our cultural tapestry is happening we are realizing that the thread of science and the thread of indigenous ancient wisdom traditions 
are actually part of a tapestry that is undivided and that is culturally one and has the same origin. And that's what makes me so optimistic and excited about the phase humanity is going through right now, because I feel like we're going through this re-indigenization of our culture. And, and often in our idea of linear development, we came across even in integral theory that is very present, the idea that there was this indigenous culture with this very limited understanding of life. And they had these woo-woo ideas of an animate, uh, animist uh, cosmos where every tree, flower, stone, etc. Is, is enchanted and inspirited. And we moved on from there with better explanation models and more complex paradigms that gave us a, a more um, holistic idea of what the cosmos is. And while that's also partially true, that idea, what is much more true is that in, in ancient wisdom traditions and in indigenous traditions, there was a profound understanding of this undivided whole living cosmos that was practiced as a direct relationship to life that was not a theoretical abstract idea to explain the scary world. It was a direct embodied relationship to feel, know, understand that everything around me is alive and I am part of everything around me. That's not just another cultural myth like, like Christianity or Islam is or whatever. And, and they, their content of truth is, is as vast as the content of truth of the indigenous cultures. But what was particular, particularly um, interesting about these cultures, and I've just spent six weeks in, in the Andean jungles of Colombia together with a family that is um, protecting indigenous ancient wisdom traditions and keeping their practices alive. What was interesting about these cultures is they had an embodied expression and understanding an integrated sense of self that did not remove them from the alive earth. They knew stepping into the forest that they are looking at themselves. They knew and felt that out of the eye of every snake and spider and jaguar is the same eye gazing that is gazing out of my eyes, as Schopenhauer said. And they knew that. They felt that. They might not have produced thick books of semantic descriptions of that philosophy because they didn't need to. Everybody embodied that. And now what I feel is happening is that we're becoming aware that these reductionistic bodies of knowledge that we've created through the scientific method are partial descriptions of something within that whole. And we're realizing that all sciences are only true as long as we don't mention that we have secret assumptions underlying them that are keeping that whole body of knowledge alive. Like Gödel's theorem talked about the limitations of math and, and statements. We have, we're in set theory, we're coming to limitations that realize like actually we will never be able to compute infinity in its essence. We have to make secret assumptions to keep math a working practice. And all of these reductionistic sciences, biology, physics, economy, most of them all have these underlying assumptions that most scientists arguing for them don't, um, don't acknowledge, don't admit. 
And that's for me entertaining if I watch Richard Dawkins arguing for biological evolutionary theories with with um, talk show hosts or podcast hosts, you hear the massive assumptions he's making about what life is, what spirit is, what something essential is, what the laws of nature are. But he's not admitting, acknowledging that he's making these assumptions because they are so essential to his sense of reality that's scary it's such a foundational fabric of the sense of relationship to reality for the whole scientific community that even naming these assumptions is is um a sacrilege it's scary don't do that don't talk about these assumptions and we have the same when we look at neurobiologists trying to explain what consciousness is like in science it's called the hard problem of consciousness because there's not a single working hypothesis hypothesis or a single theory that explains what consciousness is and why it emerges there's a lot of lingo around it of like oh it's a phenomenon of complexity and if there's complex enough informational systems that are exchanging information and energy, then there is an emergent um, phenomenon of consciousness. And that sounds amazing, but no one actually has a theory of what that even means and how that might work. There's not a single theory out there in science that explains how quantifiable systems that exchange mass, matter, charge, spin, etc., are now suddenly leading to a quality of experience that doesn't exist. But that's one of the assumptions that most other sciences make are that the basic assumptions is that there is a materialist world out there. And now we explain within that assumption how this materialist world creates the consciousness that is perceiving this materialist world. Instead of acknowledging like we have no idea, we don't know how so ever the experience I'm having right now could emerge from the matter I'm describing that I'm assuming even exists. So the other way around would be much more genuine to say, I have this experience of consciousness. I know that for a fact. And within that experience of consciousness, there's an experience of matter and how they are in relationship. I don't know. So I feel like the disconnection our sciences have from this indigenous way of looking at the world, this indigenous paradigm comes from not acknowledging, not admitting the fundamental assumptions one makes to even justify that scientific body. And if we would drop that, if we would say, oh, wow, math is, an, is a description of quantifiable phenomena within a given context that we decided to make within this infinite complex experience of life and within that context mathematical rules and theories work they produce predictable results and it's amazing we can use that for information theory we can use that to build machines we can use it for all sorts of things and it's probably not a complete description of the whole life out there so that's what I've learned from the indigenous cultures I've spent time with is that they have a direct experience of this life. And what we need is not to go out there and explain these poor fools how atoms work. But what we need is that our culture comes down from its ivory tower 
and goes there and sits in ceremony around the fire with humility and curiosity and asks them for the privilege to be taught about the mysteries of life again so that we can re-embed these disconnected scientific bodies of knowledge into a more whole, more complete relationship to life. And I feel like that's leading to the second question you actually asked. It's like, what are you doing next? And I feel like I've been teaching these things for many years. I've been trying to work with corporations to make them more curious, to turn them into learning organizations, to make them more innovative. But the result was always they just wanted to get these little secrets so they can become more successful in their linear operations. So I realized, okay, working in a corporate environment is not going to fulfill the purpose I feel I have for myself to awaken us to this truth of who we are. So I've spent a lot of time in so-called conscious communities and spiritual communities to see like, is, is that where the leading edge is happening? Is that where our relationship to this living earth is being rebuilt right now? And I realized that that's, and that's a, it's a big judgment and projection too, but in many cases in this community, there's also a certain escapist energy of being frustrated and overwhelmed and, and and disconnected and hurt by this exploitive Western culture and a wish to move into something that is more whole, that is more meeting me in, inside, that is giving me emotional sanity, that is giving me a sense of connection. But it's not where a lot of maturity is, is happening many of many times. So what I felt is needed is an actual space where we try to relearn how to live in direct relationship with this living earth while bringing everything we are as westernized humans who have gone through this cultural scientific enlightenment, who have gone through this phase of exploitation, who carry all the trauma of war, pollution, destruction, disconnected relationality, where we bring that and honor that, but where we set the intention to find our direct relationship with the soils, the compost again. So me and a group of Six people have ventured out to find a piece of land where we can practice regeneration, not as a buzzword, but as a living practice. And we found that land on the Azores in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, a really magical place that belongs to Portugal that has been really protected by from pollution and war western industrial culture and is really vital and intact and we decided to to create a, a living laboratory there where humans that are disconnected from the soils can learn being related to the soils again so we're building a regenerative village there that tries to bring regeneration to our way of living with environment, to our way of living with nature, but also to our relational ecology, 
to our informational ecology that really puts regeneration, which means cyclicality instead of linearity and complexity and contextuality at the base of everything. So we're trying to give a space that nurture that um, celebrates all these three aspects of regeneration, which are again, just a left brain way of looking at something that is undivided and, and complex. So in reality, regeneration is a constant movement and not something that goes through stages. But just to make it more understandable for us, we said, okay, let's create a place where women give, can give birth in a natural environment in direct felt connection to the soils, where we can raise our children in this phase of sustenance, maintenance in a direct relationship to how we create our food from catering to the needs of the soils, where we can raise animals that we are also, so where we are in a direct relationship with the source of the food and how a living earth creates abundance and, and surplus for us to be nourished by instead of teaching them that, oh, if, if you need food, we go to this box shaped, weird industrial house and food is living in plastic packages in a fridge that is run with electricity that comes out of the wall, like this very idea of of growing up to nourish yourself from that place feels like a very dysfunctional relationship to earth. So we want to raise children that grow up picking fruit from a tree that has never seen any chemical fertilizers or pesticides or GMO seeds that have been patented by a completely disconnected corporate organization, but picking a fruit that they remember putting the seed in the soil that they remember watching daddy watering with water from the river or Etc. So we want a place where we grow up also us adults healing our relationship to food and, and nourishment. And to complete that cycle, we want to also create a place where people can come to spend that sacred, magical final phase of their life with presence and connection, where people can come to die in a natural environment in direct connection to a living soil that is waiting to reintegrate them into the mystery of life with people paying attention to them with children listening to their life stories with awe and curiosity with adults taking care of their physical needs and where people can receive that gift of moving into this expansion of consciousness that death is being supported, being present, having the resources to actually feel this magical portal that is inviting us into this gift of ending this illusion of separation, this compassionate, generous gift by the cosmos to say, hey, I'll take that veil off your eyes now and let you see the complete infinite beauty that you are. And we want to create a place where people can celebrate that, where someone who's about to die is not met with this energy of pity and like, oh, can I put you into this sterile house and put you under sedative medication so you numb out and you don't have to see the horrible thing that is coming towards you. But where we meet a dying person with the same awe and celebration and embrace that we meet a mother who has just given birth, that we understand that this part of life 
you ending your individuality and going back into this cycle is equally beautiful, equally sacred, equally life-giving as the mother that gave birth on the same very soil yesterday. And that's the vision we have for a new village, a new culture, where we bring all our science, bring all our technology, bring our livelihoods that happen online and all these things. But we also invest a significant amount of our time to be in direct relationship with the soils. And that's why we call this place Alma do Solo, which is Portuguese for the soul of the soil. And we go there with this intention to be taught by life, to learn from life, to learn from this living environment and give back to it by regenerating its endemic forests, turning the monoculture commercial forests that are there right now into endemic, thriving, living ecosystems, centropic food forests that we are nurtured by, living, complex, ecological living systems that we are all yeah, participating in together with the plants, together with the animals, together with the aquifers, and really trying to have that indigenous experience of life again, where we not know theoretically, mythologically, but experience directly that what we look at is ourselves. We are this living life. So that's my biggest next project right now. And the other thing I am birthing right now is, in a way, the the manifestation of my life's learning as being someone with ADHD and struggling to be um, adapted to be aligned with uh, a world that has been built for people with a very different neurobiology or neurodiversity. And I've learned so much over the last years how to turn ADHD into the gift that it is, how to learn to ride this neurodiversity that I have created um, an education program, a course that pulls people out of this disorder narrative and actually tells them, hey, you've been given a ginormous gift and I'm going to now teach you how to achieve hyper-focus, how to be in relationship with the creative gifts you have and how to learn to use your ADHD as the superpower that it is and come out of the idea that there's anything to fix, that there's anything that needs to change that you just actually need to learn how to drive this amazing machine you've been handed. So those are my two biggest passion projects right now. I think I think we're going to need to have a part two on this one because there's still so many parts that I'd like to, to talk about, so many things. Uh, I am conscious of time, though. What What is the best way to get a hold of you should you want people to get a hold of you? I mean, I'm pretty much present on all the typical social media channels. You can find me on Facebook, on LinkedIn. I have a website called theinstitute.one, so .one. And you'll find most of my offerings there. We have a website for the ecology, uh, the, the regenerative village project, which is called almadosolo.org. And yeah, on these two websites, uh, you will find me. You will find also Instagram channels and Facebook sites. And yeah, under my normal name, I'm findable on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Benjamin. It was a pleasure. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out at www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.com. And check out natureontheschoolboard.com where we try to put a physical spokesperson for nature on the board of governors of every school. And last but not least, 
www.intrepidatnews.com where you'll find many, many articles of wonderful thinkers, writers, and doers in the world of education. Until then, speak to you soon. Bye-bye.